Welcome to the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics, NCSM, Leadership in Mathematics podcast. NCSM is an organization supporting mathematics education leadership at the school, district, college, university, state, province, and national levels. Its membership constitutes an international force collaborating to achieve excellence in mathematics education. Be sure to visit the NCSM website at ncsmonline.org. Welcome to episode 13 in a series of podcasts recorded at the NCSM 39th Annual Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, March 19th through 21st, 2007. This episode is titled, A Leader's Legacy, Leading from the Inside Out, and is presented by NCSM President-Elect Timothy Canold. From the Midwest, and it is my privilege to introduce our speaker to you this morning. Our featured speaker for this session is Dr. Tim Canold. At the age of 14, Tim knew that he wanted to be a high school math teacher. Not only was Tim a high school math teacher, but he was also the chairman of the department for over 17 years. During that time, Tim received the Presidential Award for Excellence in Math and Science Teaching. Tim is currently the superintendent for Adlai Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois. He is also the lead developer and presenter for New Dimensions in Leadership, which is an achievement gap training program for school administrators and teachers. And in just a few hours, Tim will become our new NCSM president. Tim is a motivational speaker and one that you will truly, truly enjoy. Today, his topic is A Leader's Legacy, Leading from the Inside Out. Please help me make welcome Dr. Tim Canold. All right, thanks, Ruth. That's very kind. I always hate that stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, I just want to thank you for coming this morning. I know it's an early session, and you, some of you were at the breakfast, had to get over here, and then it's Wednesday, so we're kind of getting on that swing of either going home or about to launch an NCTM. Either way, you're kind of on this level of transition. Uh, but I really am going to work hard this morning to take you through five very specific things that we as leaders in our schools need to look at do we, if we really choose to sustain significant improvement in student achievement over time. And it is such a hard task that without some of these things in terms of our own leadership um, characteristics, it is very difficult to achieve. So I think this will be um, enjoyable, but it will also be challenging. Uh, so either way, I'm going to have fun and we'll just see what happens. Uh, all right. Well, uh, if you look at this quote, this opening quote, it's very interesting to me because uh, I took a look at a book by two gentlemen who are considered to be the leading researchers on leadership in this country. Their names are James Coses and Barry Posner. And they've actually um, written a book titled um, A Leader's Legacy. And, uh, and in their discoveries, they looked at probably over 200,000 organizational leaders over a period of time, over the last 20 years, and what they have said is, based on all that we've done from our research, here's what we know about great leadership. Here's who great leaders are. Here's what they do. And I was like, wow, there's so much for us to learn from that as we try to lead our own organizations, whatever your title and role is. And one of the things that they roll out, and the summary is sort of on that front page, you know, obviously with a, a larger group, you can't pass out a big handout, so you just have essential knowledge elements on that yellow sheet. But one of the things that they said is that what's really interesting, leadership is not about your title. 
I am superintendent of my district, it does not make me a good leader because I get the title. Essentially, their argument is that everyone's a leader. It's the leader we see most often, the one we turn to when we need guidance and support. Every single one of you have people who are around you who are looking to you for guidance and support. So you're their leader, not, not the superintendent. You're the one closest to their fire. And what's interesting is that whether your title is department chair, team leader, coach, teacher, principal, director, coordinator, parent, doesn't matter. You are the most important leader in your organization for those that look to you first. In fact, they say a very interesting thing in one part of the book, later on in the book. They say this thing about, and in fact, one of the elements um, that we're going to talk about today is actually how you are the most important um, uh, leader in your organization. But here's what they say. In these over 200,000 leaders that they've talked to, people that they interviewed, they said, when asked what contributes most to ethical behavior in your organization, the most frequent response from employees, managers, and individual contributors at every level of the organization is the behavior of my boss contributes to my ethical behavior. When asked what contributes most to unethical behavior in your organization, the most frequent response is the behavior of my boss. Your behavior is critical and everyone's watching. Everyone that's near you is watching. What are you doing? What are you saying? What are you promoting? What are you believing? How do you treat people? It's an interesting dilemma. Reflecting on these findings for a moment, when we ask participants in our leadership programs to share their observations, invariably one thing becomes very apparent. The leaders who have the most influence on us are those who are closest to us. Longitudinal studies of corporate executives reveal that the single best predictor of career success is the relationship they had with their very first supervisor. Let me read that again. That's a very important point. Longitudinal studies of corporate executives reveal that the single best predictor of their career success as a teacher, let's think of it that way, is the relationship they had with their very first mentor, boss, supervisor. That's you. That's me. The character and quality of that relationship. Now get this. This, is, this means you're going to have to like people you don't even like. Okay, so that's going to be a problem, right? I mean, the, the character and quality of the relationship, for example, the expectations that your first supervisor had about your work potential are more important than anything else you did, than where you went to school, than what grades you got, than what you studied, than who your parents were, whether you were rich or poor, what field of industry you were in. It didn't matter. What mattered was the relationship you had with your first supervisor. Think about all, the, all of us that dedicate ourselves to cooperative teaching and taking on student teachers. I have, a, I have a daughter who's an eighth grade math teacher. She's 25 years old, third year. And I'm very proud of that. But her, her cooperating teacher was so poor that I had to step in. I became her mentor because I was worried that she would just sink. Isn't that interesting? If that had been her experience, I don't know if she'd still be in teaching. So there's a lot to say in, in this relationship. Well, oh, another thing, too, is... Um, one of the characteristics that you're going to see here is um, to embrace your loving critics. <laughs> uh, and my wife, is, my wife is my best loving critic. I, I know she loves me, but she's definitely not afraid to criticize me. So uh, she has told me, always cut the number of transparencies you have in half. You'll never get through them all. Just, just take whatever you thought you were going to do, Tim, and cut it in half, and you'll probably be right in the money. So I did that, and I'm still thinking I need to cut it in half more. But um, if any of you see her ever tell her, he did cut it in half. All right. Well, um, now why talk about this? Just, just quickly, I want to say, 
we are working hard to do things well. But the truth is, it doesn't sustain itself over time as a general rule. We are all frustrated with that. There's pockets of improvement, there's pockets of influence, but the truth is, it's not sustainable. It doesn't really stick with us. Um, and the, the question is, how do we lead a, a sustainable pace that closes the gap? And, and the response to that will unfold in looking at these things about us. How do we do this? How do we lead? Um, now, and I just thought I didn't want to talk about it. So I'll come back to it, I promise. <laughs> so there are these five things. One, um, understanding that if you want to have a life that you could look back on and say, man, I was such a good leader. Like, that would be like a standard of litmus test of great leadership. These are the five elements that come to bear from their research. And so, you know, I mean, I didn't make this up. You know, I'm just, re I'm just reflecting what they said. Uh, one, that we, our, one of those things that has to be first and foremost on our plate is to serve and sacrifice. A lot of people don't like those words. What do you mean I have to sacrifice? Mm -hmm. That's right. It's not about you. Leadership is not about you. If no one's following you, you're not a leader. That, you know, it takes, yeah, right. it, it takes fellowship to be a leader. It takes influence. It takes relationships. So the reality is that takes sacrifice on our part, and it requires this mindset. In those schools, we're, we're seeing sustained effort time and time again. The leaders are exhibiting these qualities. Um, the best leaders are teachers. We'll talk about that. Which For us, that should be easy. That's what we are. I mean, it should be easy to think of ourselves as teachers, but something happens when we become supervisors, math chairs, coordinators, principals, um, leaders, you know, district specialists, it's like, and we leave the classroom, it's like we forget we're teachers. Now I have to tell you, this one's not easy because teaching adults is very messy. Adults are not often very cooperative. They're not nice. They're, 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 they come back. See, students, it's so easy to teach students because, you know what, you all, those of you that still have some teaching assignments right now, the great thing is, in June, they leave. And they go on to become someone else's problem in the next grade level or the next course. You get a whole new set next year and you get to start over. Our adults that we work with, they keep coming back. And not only that, but get this, get ready for this. The adults, the, the teachers, they come back and they are allowed to be mediocre. Education, by its very nature, tolerates mediocrity. You aren't required to work at an excellent level. The best teachers, the greatest teachers, the best leaders, somehow it's just in your DNA. You decide to become and work at a great level. But for the most part, our system tolerates people working at very mediocre or even non-mediocre levels, and it's like that's maddening. How do we lead people out of mediocrity? And, and, I, and if you just stick with me, these things will help lead others out of mediocrity. Um, so, uh, three here, you're loving critics, that's our third piece. Four, uh, you have the most important leading organization. Five, no one likes to be a subject, so I'm going to take us through these five things. Here we go. Number one, uh, this is the only part of this entire message that you're going to get to have a chance to talk to each other, so enjoy it, and it's only going to last a minute. So here it is. Uh, this is actually on the back side of the handout. Well, they make a very interesting point about um, authentic leadership comes from the inside out. It starts from knowing who the heck you are. And this is so hard because, believe it or not, we don't know. Like, for example, if a television camera crew came in front of you and put a, and put a microphone in your face and said, give me your 30-second message on what you're all about as a math education leader in your district, you'd be like, I want kids to do better. 
Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd be frozen for a minute because you'd be like, well, I haven't really thought of it, though. I don't really know who I am. I don't really know all the... Well, I know I do all this stuff. I must believe in it, I guess. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, we don't really know that. And so if the, he makes the point. They make this point. Okay, somebody comes in the room and says, hi, I'm your new... Hey, I'm your new president of NCSM in four hours. I'm your new leader. What do you want to know? Well, who the heck is this guy, Really? What do you stand for and believe in? Because you're going to be leading the organization. Why you? I don't know. Somebody voted for me. I, I, was, I had a brief moment and said, put my name on the ballot. I, I, I mean, after going through this weekend, a week, I'm like going, oh, what did I decide to sign up for? Um, what qualifies you for the job? What makes you think you can do it? This is what people are asking mentally, but they're not saying it out loud, but they want to know. Um, what makes you think you can do this? And then here's the kicker for everybody. As soon as people find out they have a new leader, they're like, okay, that's nice. But what's it going to mean for me? You, you become, okay, what's it going to do? Uh-oh, what's this change going to mean? What changes are you going planning to make? And you know what? People get really nervous about that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a minute to imagine you're walking into the room and you're the new leader. And maybe some of you have had that experience this year. You got a new job, you got a transition to a new job, and there are people that hate you right now, or people that kind of think you're okay, or people that haven't decided yet. But either way, you're the new leader. You're the new person kind of leading this group or team or area of instruction. How would you answer those questions that are up there on that screen? All right, so I'm going to give you one minute. I want to ask you to raise your hands in the air. Please put your hands in the air and then just stop talking. Okay, that'll be your signal to stop talking. And then stop. All right, ready? Go. How would you answer these questions? Time's up, hands in the air. Good. Okay. Now, this would actually be like an all-day workshop. We could have a lot more fun, but I'll just give you the essence of it at the moment. So, good discussion here because this really begins to get at who, how, who are we as leaders. Now, here are the elements. Um, first of all, this notion of leader, servant, sacrifice. Um, sacrifice and suffering sounds like harsh words, doesn't it? I mean, it's just kind of tough thinking. And... The idea that is teaching and leading your passion. Uh, in, I believe there's a cycle of leadership that we go through in our careers. Like, for example, how many of you were actually teaching in the 70s like me? Wow. How about before the 70s? I really admire you, and you're, you're like still standing. Uh, sitting. Uh, how many, okay, anybody here that was born in the 70s? Oh, man. Wow. Well, we're glad you're here, because you're, you're the next generation leaders in this country. So, so, so you really need to learn this. All right. but, uh, but there's this cycle of leadership where when you first come in, there's this great passion. And, and leaders sort of have that, this passion like, I'm going to do good for the organization. I'm going to do good for the school. I'm going to do good do for, for you know, my work. I want to do that. And, uh, and passion is great, and you need that. And you must even sustain it over time, but eventually it fades. It's not enough to keep your leadership um, uh, presence out there. Eventually, you have to have knowledge and skills. 
which is why you come to conferences like this. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you have a lot of passion, that'll be nice, but eventually people will be like, well, is the boat going to go anywhere? Are we leaving the harbor yet? Um, which harbor are we going to? You know, so you have to have a sense of knowledge and skills about where you wanted to go and what are the systems you have. But here's the key question. What are the systems you set in place to help others? What's kind of weird is, as teachers, we assume it's our duty to help our students. But as adult leaders, we don't necessarily assume it's our duty to help other adults. It's almost as if we want to keep it real safe and not hurt anyone's feelings. Um, it's, it's strange that we have to go in with a plan for how do we actually help other adults get better. And in fact, there's this third stage of true leadership. And those of you that said you've been doing this gig since the 70s and 60s and early 80s, the reality is we have a responsibility to guarantee and to ensure that our primary job is developing the capacity of other adults. That is our job. It is not, I want to make this really clear, it was not and will never be about us as individuals. It is about our ability to lead others, to develop the capacity of others, and to do it in a way that, is, that works, and do it in a way that's effective, not in a way that's off-putting, in a way that destroys confidence and trust. So I want to look at that just for a little because those are sort of the cycles we go through, and, um, and it starts with relationships. It's interesting, you know, I work with all kinds of adult leadership groups, all levels of, you know, mass supervisor groups like this, all the way up to superintendent groups. And, and it's interesting that when I ask them what is their primary task in their leadership responsibilities, relationship building never comes up as the number one priority. And yet it is. All of the research on leadership says relationship building is the first thing you've got to go do well. And if you don't get that right, nothing will sustain itself. It's a very interesting challenge. And so um, leadership is a relationship between those who aspire to lead and those who choose to follow. So you've got to work on the relationships with people so that they'd want to consider following you. Why should they follow you? Um, you know, an interesting question we ask in every interview we do for a teacher candidate, somewhere during the interview, we say to them, and if it's elementary versus high school, if it's elementary, we'll say, we're about to give you 30 students. Okay, maybe in Georgia the average class size is 22. But um, we'll, we'll say we're about to give you 30 students, and we'll say why would they want to follow you for the next 10 months? Why would they want to do that? What is so special about you that they would follow you? And people are stunned by that question. It's like, I thought you were going to ask me about, like, do I have a degree or not? You know, I mean, it's, it's weird. And same thing in high school, we just say, you know, we're about to give you 150 students. Why would they possibly want to follow you for the next 10 months? What's so special about you? How will you commit, get them to commit? Um, we don't live lives in solitary confinement. Um, one of the things that I want to make really clear here is that if you, back in your home areas, have any adults that are being allowed to work in isolation, it must end now. We have got to become a country that begins to envision a collaborative workforce and not one that tolerates the inequities created by isolation and individual decision-making. People have to come together, make tough decisions together, be in relationship together, and make those hard decisions. We don't lead lives by hiding in our offices, you know, in solitary confinement. Uh, we lead our lives in company of others. It's where we leave our legacy. Ultimately, when you leave, what are they going to say about you? That, your legacy is built in the relationships. You know, when you really strip it all away, my father-in-law died this year at age 82. kind of watched him die, actually. And, um, you know, as he went through his final year. And ultimately, it's not about anything else other than what was the quality of the relationships the person had. It's not about the trophies we win and the accolades we get and the assignments that we have and the jobs that we do. It's, it's really about did we have good relationships and help people become better. 
I mean, it's an interesting dilemma because we don't put it up there as a priority. It's the quality of those relationships that determines our legacy. And if you have people that, and by the way, I just want to say this, if you have people you work with that don't really care if other people like them, get rid of them. Get them out of your way. Don't tolerate them. They are cancerous to the culture. You should want your people, leaders, and all those that are in the school culture to want to be liked by their colleagues, to want to have to be accepted, to want to belong. Isolationists and those that don't want to become part of a collective good generally are the kind of people that we don't like. You all have them. You have people that aren't here that you don't like. You're going to go back and go, oh, Tim told me I have to go like that person. I've got to actually embrace them. I've got to figure out how to listen to them. I've got to figure out how to talk to them. And you might have to have a tough conversation with them. I had a uh, teacher on my staff, this is almost 10 years ago now, that was just mean-spirited, sharp elbows. She was nasty to people. She was defensive. She was, um, you know, the kind of person that if you said anything, she gave you that immediate butt rebuttal and then um, and got really like, you know, like as a, it was a personal attack on her and would get like just attack you right back. And, and finally, people didn't want to really be around her. And I went to her and I said, this has got to stop. I'm not your friend anymore. I have stopped being your friend because you are a mean-spirited person and you do not treat others well and I am not going to tolerate that on my watch. And either you change or I want you out. One or the other. And she was 28 years old. And I said, you're too young to be this way. Life's a marathon, not a sprint. You need to lighten up a little bit with life. And so she didn't talk to me probably for seven or eight months. I mean, didn't talk to me. That is the uh, result of making a decision about what you want to believe in as a leader. And, uh, but everyone, it's just, uh, the thing is that they might not like you, but everyone else will. The whole rest of the department was like, thank you. <laughs> you finally, somebody finally took her on. It took years, two to three years later. She actually finally left. And it took two or three years later, and she finally emailed me, and she said, you know what? You were the first one to put the mirror in front of my face. And I didn't want to hear it. I didn't believe you. I didn't like you. I didn't want to hear the message. And she goes, but I was losing my marriage at the time. She goes, I think in the end you saved my marriage because my husband was telling me the same things you were telling me. And I'm thinking, man, I don't want to be married to this lady. (laughs) So anyway, so. And uh, I wouldn't say that, you know, she's transformed, but she's softer now. You know, she's got the the sharp elbows and the perfectionist tendencies are slowing down, which math folks tend to have a little bit. Um, we shouldn't strive to win every skirmish, but instead endeavor to unite our decisions so we can create to better thinking and action. Here it is. As leaders, our discussions often fall under um, the easier to think of this, the tyranny of or. The tyranny of or. It must be basic skills or it has to be problem solving oriented. It must be technology use or no technology use. It must be student engaged learning or direct instruction. That's very dangerous thinking. Our job is to create ice cream sundaes. Okay, keep this one. Hot fudge Sundays. This is our job. And, uh, you know, just think of that. What did I learn at the NCSM conference this year? I should go back and create hot fudge Sundays in my school district. Yes, because that's how you get collaborative dialogue to work. People come together and someone says, 
our makeup policy should be zeros as soon as the kid doesn't turn it in. Kids need to have life lessons. Kids need to know their consequences. They knew the assignment was due on Friday. I told them two weeks ago. They don't turn in. They get a zero. And someone on that same group teaching that same grade level, that same course says, no, you know what? Kids need a chance to, you know, we want them to get the work done. It doesn't matter if there's a deadline or not. They just need to do it. If they don't do the math, we won't be able to get them moving along the road learning what we need them to learn. So I'm going to let them make up assignments all the way to the end of the grading period and they can just make them all up for full credit, no problem. Well, that is the opposite end of that homework spectrum, makeup policy spectrum. And what we have to do as leaders is bring those two people together, put them into a rubber room until they come out with a hot plug Sunday. <laughs> and a hot plug Sunday is where someone wants something hot and someone wants something cold, and they put it together and create a better dessert. Our job as leaders is to broker those relationships and to get their dialogue and to say, hey, it's okay to have diverse opinion. It's okay to have different thoughts. It's okay to come at it differently. But ultimately, what's best for students is that we figure out the best answer and we all honor it. What's best for kids is that we figure out how to take those variant ideas and create a better new meaning, a better action. So that's one of our jobs is to broker Hot Fest Sundays. In other words, gosh, could we have a makeup policy that makes sure all kids do the work and make sure that there's appropriate consequences? Could we use technology and not use technology and have a better curriculum? Could we integrate basic skills with essential problem solving and have a better, couldn't it be an and instead of the tyranny of or? And those that want to fall into the tyranny of or, it's because it's how they define their world. So they don't want to have to adjust their world to a better day. Now they got it figured out. So our job is to say, no, we're, we're going to go after this. What's best for the kids? Building trust, I just want to talk a little bit about trust. Um, trust is a social glue that binds human relationships. But we don't have trust. And let me tell you this too, like everything we do in our leadership roles, trust is a process and not an event. Okay, we got trust down, let's go on to something else. Trust is something you work at every day and never take for granted. That, oh my gosh, have I really worked hard at these relationships so that trust is is inside it. Am I doing things that, that is trust busting? Am I doing things that is violating the trust of the group or the person that I'm trying to lead? Sometimes trust breaks down. People let us down. This is often, do, do you realize that um, we're human beings? So by the very nature of who we are, we will let people down. And so what happens when we let people down is people want to blame people. They want to, you know, um, say, okay, I can never trust that person again. So the social bond becomes unglued. What do we do? Well, what Cousins' program suggests we can do is that as a leader, we have to heal the trust first. So that means, first of all, you've got to ante up first. That means you've got to even know that there's a trust issue going on. This person either doesn't seem to be responding correctly, they seem to, you know, it's all those elephants that are in the room that no one wants to talk about. You have to put them out on the table and be open and honest with them. So um, this means taking time to build relationships. It means listening to others. You know, um, I'm such an advocate, I'm a passionate advocate for the removal of teacher isolation. Teachers are not independent contractors. They are not self-employed. They work for the school district. Therefore, they should be doing what's the good will and best will of the, of the students. If we have great things going on in one classroom and not so great things going on in another classroom, that's not healthy. That's bad. There should be great things going on in both classrooms, and the leaders, you and me, should be working on to help everyone achieve those great things. Well, the reality is that um, often the people who are resistant and don't want to participate in discussions around formative assessments and discussions around um, lesson design and discussion, it's because, well, I don't know, I never asked them why they don't want to do it. 
in fact, I don't even assume I know, as if somehow I'm a magical guru of their mind and brain. No, so you've got to go to them and ask. You know what? We know that it's best for kids if we do this. Why don't you want to do it? Why don't you want to integrate technology into your lesson design? How do you, why do you think that's such a bad thing? And we have to ask. And we have to listen to what they're saying. And then we integrate their responses into what's best. And say, well, okay, I hear that. What do you think is best for children based on what we know? And as leaders, that's what we do. We take them and integrate them into new meaning based on where we want to take them. So, um, and also, what is acceptable and unacceptable in terms of how people treat each other? Do you know how much courage it took somebody to finally step up the plate and talk to that teacher that was being mean to everybody? But we have to do it. Who's going to do it? You've got to ante up first. If you've got um, things going on in your school culture that's not acceptable in terms of how people treat each other, we've got to say something. That's how you build trust, by not allowing bad behaviors to happen. It's kind of like this. Just think of it this way. Here is your job and my job. We are the gatekeepers of the relationship, of the trust building. So you've got this kind of like box that represents the behaviors that we'd like within the organization or our school in order for how we'll behave, right? But what happens because people are human? They fly outside the box. Their, their behaviors go outside what we said we do. For example, uh, I don't know, you might have something simple. Like how many of you um, participate in meetings on a weekly basis? Yes, all of us. Okay. Right. Weekly. All of them means. All right. Well, so, so you get in the meeting, and you've got this agreement, your box, part of your box, the norms inside your box are, that there will be no sidebar conversations. That when the group is having a discussion, two people aren't going to huddle up and do a little gossip thing going. And, but what happens is somebody does it. They fly outside the box and exhibit a behavior that is inconsistent with the, what you said would be the way that you would work together. Well, somebody's got to bring that person back inside the box. That's me. That's you. That's us. We have to be sort of the gatekeepers of what we said we were going to do in order to build trust with one another and not allow that. Um, I think I have this later in the um, uh, presentation, but I'll, I'll just say it right now. There's this wonderful concept. How many of you have read um, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great? And you're aware of that book. Okay. And um, it's in it. There's this, uh, and Good to Great is about great organizations and great leaders, and how did you get there? How did you develop that and nurture that in your school? Uh, well, in, in organizations, then he brought it into the social sector in the schools. And one of the things he talks about, about the leaders in there, that they found in every single case, a characteristic is what they call the window mirror concept. And this is so powerful. I mean, if you would, if you would just simply live your life by this concept, your leadership life, actually, even your personal life, like this works really well in my relationship at home, for the most part. So, um, <laughs> which reminds me of another story, but I'll have to see if I have time for it. So, um, what happens is, in the women there concept, when things are going great with the stuff you're leading, and things are going really well, and you know something really worked, and improvement has happened, and achievements going up, and uh, I don't know some program that you're putting in, everybody's just really got it rocking, and, and you're just very, you see good things going on. You look out the window and you credit everyone else. You do not look at yourself. You don't say, hey, look how great I am. I'm not a good leader. Look at everything's working so good. Oh, it's so good. No. You look out and you see, and it's, you know what? In the classroom, it looks like this. Man, these are just great kids. Teachers that year in, year out, you say, oh, but I have such great kids. You know, they don't say, man, I'm just such a great teacher. <laughs> That's why these kids are so good. 
No, they were th- we do have people that say that, but that's a problem. That would, uh, those people, you know, that's an a, a arrogance issue. But the, um, so the women near concert says, when things are going great, I look out the window and cut others. When things are not going so great, when people are failing to get things done, when the achievement's not really where you want it, when there's a struggle to figure out how to get um, uh, things done well, whatever it would be that you're, you're taking on in your leadership um, arena, when that happens, in the great leaders look in the mirror and say, what do I need to do to get this to get better? And they don't blame others. Never blame others or allow gossip that blames others. Well, if they just do their job. Let me give you an example of this. I'm working on a large district. I won't tell you. It, anyway, it's, it's a, it happened to be a high school. Urban high school. Uh, about 2,500 kids. And they had about a 50% failure rate in, in their algebra program, ninth grade algebra program. 50% of the kids are failing semester in, semester out. So a lot of kids recycling through and then proving again that they don't know it. And uh, in, they decided to put in an intervention and support program. Created a great plan, had it all set to go. And now it's the following February and we're looking at first semester results. And actually the failure rate had gone up. It was now around 55%. Which, considering you put in an intervention plan, you'd think things would get a little bit better. So I've got the whole group there, including the department chair, the team leader, uh, the assistant principal, and the principal. And so um, I just said, oh, gosh, this is pretty funny. How could this have happened? Because we thought we were so sure the intervention program would have made a difference. And they said, and the department chair looked at me and said, well, um, we didn't put the intervention program in. I said, oh. So you basically allowed these uh, it was 500 students in the course. About, so, so basically, just sort of allowed 250 kids to fail through the whole semester without any intervention or support. Is that what you're telling me? These children are now failed because of your lack of effort or ineptitude or leadership. Is that right? And uh, I know that sounds strong, but you know what? It, they need to hear it. So uh, <laughs> I, said it, I, I said it in a nice way. So, <laughs> well, and, and sure enough, you know what the department chair said? She goes, well, Sherry didn't put it in. Yeah, right. Uh, Who's Sherry? That's the assistant principal for instruction. And, and she looks at me and she goes, well, the principal, well, John didn't tell us that it would be okay to put it in. I was waiting to hear from him. And John's like, we had an intervention program? <laughs> yeah. You see, but, but there was this kind of like blaming rather than, you know, it, you know and it's okay to just sort of say, you know, if you're the department chair, just to have said, you know what? You're right. We should have put it in, and it was my responsibility to make sure it got through. Because actually, the department chair said, what, well, what did you want from me? <laughs> you know. And I said, I wanted you to take the responsibility to make sure it happened no matter what and remove all barriers so that these kids would benefit. That's what I want you to do. You have to step up and lead. So anyway, the point is that um, no gossip, no blaming others. Don't allow that to take place. Good leaders look within. All right, um, the best way to learn is to teach. This will be kind of fun. Um, how well does your current school culture provide opportunities for you to learn from others, and how are you turning those, um, those you lead into teachers? So one of the things that's very clear is that like a next level of leadership is the ability for you to get others that you're leading to begin to lead others, to begin to teach others, to kind of be teaching the message. It's very subtle. But I don't think we tend to teach, think of it that way. Like, it took me a long time, even as um, a division director of math and science, to sort of say, oh, my first job is to get the people I'm leading, my teachers, from teaching everyone else the good things we need to know. 
whether it's technology integration or lesson study or whatever, I don't have to be the lead dog teacher on everything. In fact, I should get them to be actually taking on, because when you teach others in your organization, you begin to assume ownership in, in the culture that you want to take place. So it's not only the leader having ownership in the culture. So, um, and, and one of the things that we talk about um, as you begin to get people together to do this and, and get others to teach um, is to um, talk about what is your butt factor. I know that sounds funny. I don't know how that's going to sound on the recording, but um, the, uh, the butt factor is watch when you're having discussions about how you're teaching each other as adults, how often, as soon as someone says something, someone else says, but, da 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 And the but just counters the thinking that someone just threw out there. We actually have a thing that says no buts are allowed. And any discussions we have at any level at, at, within our entire district, the word but cannot be allowed. You know, you can say and. So, for example, if someone says, well, I really think it's important that in this unit of instruction that we integrate technology throughout the entire sequence, and here's what it should be, and here's my reason. And so as soon as they get done and they, and they, and they just take a breath, someone jumps in and says, but, you know, here's why we can't do it. Versus just saying and, maybe we should also consider these things. So the word and is a much better replacement for the word but, and I just would remind you of that. Um, and we must be intentional about individual and collective lifelong learning and sharing. So um, that is making sure that as leaders, we're forcing our teachers to get into these constant, it's not should we change, it's what needs to get changed. It's a very important thought. It's not should we change. Gosh, you know, should we really change stuff this year? No, of course. Actually, you should change things every year. It's the only way continuous improvement happens. But it should be focus changed on the things that you know are going to improve. Well, when you say there's going to be change, people's feelings get hurt because if they've been working on something a lot, they think, well, gosh, and I must have done it wrong. No, they got it to today. So the way you get forward-looking thinking is you say, okay, what do we need to change to make it even better for next year? And, then, and it, does your culture of your school have an assumption of getting better every year, of never being good enough, never getting there? So are you teaching in your culture a culture of continuous improvement, of, of getting better? Uh, it's an essential question of leadership and how you develop the culture of the school. Um, in a sense, it's, it's called forward-looking is a leadership prerequisite. What are, so they do all the 200, they only survey 200,000 people. Okay, small study. What do most people want in their leaders? Like if you said, man, if I'm going to follow somebody, this is what I must have. There were two that came out by far, and then three through ten were far below. Here's what they said. Honesty, number one, 91%. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Gosh, it would just be nice if our leaders were honest. <laughs> Actually, no hidden agendas. They tell us the truth, even if we don't like to hear it. Um, two, get ready for this. Being able to envision uplifting and ennobling image of the future and to enlist others in a common purpose. I got to Stevenson in 1986. Our D and F rate in our math and science curriculum was 59% throughout the whole system, grades 6 12. 59% of the kids were getting D's and F's in our school system in 1986. That very first year that I was there as their leader, and I was pretty raw because I came right out of the classroom. So, like, what did I really know? I was passionate, but I didn't know much. 
You know, I mean, so I had to build on the knowledge part, right? I said to him, I said, someday we are going to have single-digit Ds and Fs in this school district. Someday, only nine, single-digit would be like nine or less. That's the math part of the talk. So, um, <laughs> actually, no, I have another math part to the talk. But, uh, so, single-digit is like 9%. And in 1986, they looked at me like, you are crazy. You are nuts. Tim, you don't know our kids. You don't know our district. You don't know our culture. You don't know who we are. And I said, well, you don't know me. Someday we're going to get there. I said, I know when it will happen. But you paint this picture of an ennobling future. I mean, what kind of future would that be to be able to work in a school district where grade 6, 12, the kids are getting only 9 or 8 or 7 or 4% Ds and Fs. They act without, without writing down your curriculum. You keep your standards up here, but kids actually are doing those standards. Well, how awesome would that be? They just looked at me like, well, you know, it's not going to happen. I was, and I told people earlier, I said, if you don't believe that, don't stay. If you don't believe that, if you don't want to come there with me, don't stay. I don't want to mess around with people who don't want to get it. That was hard for some of them. Anyway, I mean, I couldn't force them to leave, but I just was like, I'm going to make your life miserable then because, you know, I'm not going to tolerate anything but your best effort. And what was interesting was, um, I didn't think of it back then as like, oh gosh, I was doing a good leadership thing. I'm painting a picture of an ennobling future. I was just like, we need to go there. <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me what it was like, you know. And, uh, but then I'm thinking like, oh, that must have been a good thing. <laughs> and then what you do is you don't go there all at once. We went for 55. See, continuous improvement and change. Could we just get it to 55%? Okay. 50, okay, we got there. So, and then when you get there, you have a party. So we had a party. And then I said, can we get it to 50? And we got there, and then we had a party. Can we get it to 45? And we got there, we had another party. And we were having cake all the time, we were having parties. And see, do you understand what that starts to do in the culture? It begins to create a culture of hope. Because after 10 years, worth of 59% these and us, and that just must be the way it is around here. And every single one of you are coming here this time, at this conference, in this moment, and I will guarantee you, if you look at your data over time, you have a status quo acceptance of how kids can perform, and that's just the way it is, because you know, Certain kinds of kids just can't learn. This is about how they learn in our district, Tim. Well, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be that way, does it? Who's going to paint that better picture of a better future if it's not you and not me? So we went for, then we went for 40, then we went for 35, then we went for 30. And before you knew it, we hit 7%. And I took, I took 12 years. 12 years. I know that's, and some of you are going, I don't have 12 years. I, more. You know, I'm like, well, okay, but start. Let someone start, train the next leader, and let those people start. Yeah. So, there you go. So, um, anyway, so isn't that hysterical? That what people want in their leaders is the ability to say, could, you, could we be like this in 2010? And here's what I think it's going to take to get there. Let's go. That's what they want from you and me. That's what they want from you and me. It's, I'm not gonna, I didn't say it's easy, but that's what they want. Okay. Um, I really want to take us into this. And I, this is how I'm going to have to end. I apologize. We'll just, I'll do part two next year. Come to Salt Lake City and you'll get part two, okay? Um, just the way it is. All right. Uh, I really felt like I wanted to show you this and um, this area of loving critics and why it's so necessary. And I want to present you with, um, I want to finish today with kind of, I think, something that will be very inspirational, but um, that will, from a whole other lens, illustrate why it's so important we go home and lead people into collective effort and out of their isolation. 
it's for their own mental health. So here's, here it is. Okay. All right. I want to finish with talking to you about living a quadrant one and two life. And I want to frame this in the context of telling you that at my mid-year message with my whole faculty and staff, this was my message. I'm going to give you the 10-minute version. Then we'll be done. And uh, you must do this too. You must think about how am I leading the people that are in my area of influence and what am I doing, not just to be about math, but to actually lead them as human beings, which will get them to do the math you want them to do. So that's kind of a secret. It's kind of like at the same time that we're doing all this great math stuff, we also have to lead people. Sorry, but it's why if you don't want to lead people, then, then get out. You know, go, don't lead people then. It's, it, it's not easy. It's messy. So how do you do it well? Well, you do it by living a quadrant one and two lives. So this is the other part of the math talk. Um, now, uh, this, this is an energy grid. It's an energy. The energy you have in your life. Like, I'm tired today. I, it's, gosh, it's, it's the end of March almost. You're like, aren't you tired? It's been a long year. You know, we're, we've been here. We're all tired. We get that. So you have this energy level, so to speak, an energy grid. And you have uh, um, the uh, horizontal axis is sort of negative energy and positive energy. And the vertical axis is high energy and low energy. Whoops. Oh, shoot. There we go. There we go. And low energy. Now, when you are in quadrant one, where your energy is high and it's positive, it's like the best days of your life. It's the best days of your week or your time of day even. Um, and you are motivated, you're help, helpful, you're helpful, you're able to help others. People are working, and, and by the way, this comes from a psychologist by the name of James Lurer, and his work that he's done on the psychology of energy and motivation uh, illustrates that we don't, get ready for this because you're going to go, oh no, I do, we don't really work for the money and the benefits. Yes, we need them. We need to be paid well, and we should be. That's part of the respect for our profession. We need to get benefits so that we can you know, raise our children and be able to be healthy and all that stuff. But the reality is that's not why you work. For the mo not if you're a great leader. If that's why you're working, you're probably not very much fun to be around because now it's a job. It's not a legacy you're trying to create. It's not a passion. It's not what you're doing because it's your talent. It's what you're wired up for. You're just doing a job because, you know, you need that. He says, what we really, the reason we work is for the privilege of living in quadrant one, of living a motivated, hopeful, helpful, serving life. It's very interesting, compelling. And he said, our energy's got to be high to do that. And then um, he said, there's quadrant two. And, you know, I know this is where he puts quadrant two. He obviously wasn't a math major. Okay? Thanks. <laughs> so, I know he's got quadrant two where we think quadrant four is, but okay. I thought of calling him up, but I don't know his number. So anyway, when you have positive energy but it's low, that's um, serene and relaxed, and we're kind of like, oh. And even to some extent, coming to a conference like this provides that if you don't talk to too many people. Right. Like, if you, if, like you actually use it to like get away and get a little sunshine on your face and just relax for a minute. That's a good thing. That's quadrant two time. Um, and then quadrant three, I know, got it messed up a little bit, is when you have negative energy that's high, and that's anger and fear. And many of you are going to go home, and you're going to, maybe some of you even came in here a little angry, just because of how life's been working on you this year. And you're impatient, you're angry, you're just a little stewed up about stuff. Maybe coming here, actually talking to your colleagues helped. You know, helped to relieve some of that anger. But the reality is, Quadrant three is a very dangerous place to live. And if you're working 
that will your work put you in a place where you're living in quadrant three, you will be a miserable person and you'll be miserable to be around. These people are not fun people. And by the way, um, people who work and live in quadrant three often don't want to get out. They want to stay there. They're martyrs. They, they, they think they're protecting something. And yet they're not very happy people. Um, and in quadrant four, when your uh, energy is low and negative, um, that's uh, reflected in sadness and depression. And maybe not clinical depression, but certainly an, abil- an inability to mobilize yourself to action. So when quadrant four is a very dangerous place to be because it, you, you, you are um, unable to function well in, in an active way. And certainly you can't focus on others. You're, you're so um, stuck in your own world that you can't really contribute to others the way you should. So he says the secret is living a quadrant one and two life and staying out of three and four. My wife and I laugh because I wake up in the morning in quadrant one. You know what to do! <laughs> and, and she still isn't quite used to it. And she wakes up in quadrant three and a half. So, you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing where I, I've got to take a cup of coffee, kind of shove it through the door of the bedroom, and say, honey, I'll be back in five minutes. And then once she has her coffee, she's kind of moving on into it. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. This is good to know. So, uh, you know, uh, actually, since I gave this message to my mid-year st- my staff mid-year, we actually have had conversations in the hallways about, I think you're slipping over into three. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, so symptoms that we're slipping over into three. So here's the test. So the test is this. And, um, and I'm going to go to five after, if that's all right, So since we started a little late. Okay. So the symptoms that we're slipping into quadrant three and four, this is so good. Now, um, this is his research, and he says, I'm going to show you these, and kind of link yourself, like, really, really happens to me, you know, this doesn't happen very often, or, oh, often happens. And then once you're done with the ratings, I'll tell you how many of them, that if you have them, you're slipping over. Okay, and then that way you'll at least know, and you can acknowledge it to everybody later on. So here it is. Number one, symptom you're slipping into three and four. One, chronic sense of never enough time to get things done. And you're all going, that's my life, Tim. What do you mean? <laughs> well, it's a chronic sense. I don't know. Define chronic however you want. Uh, two, increased durability. I called my principal earlier this week. We're having some problems. The uh, principal at the high school. And, uh, and she literally, I called her. Um, I got her secretary. Her secretary said, you know, Tim's on the phone, needs to talk to you. She literally picked up the phone and said, what do you want? I was like, well, first of all, I'd like you to say, hi, Tim, how are you doing today? <laughs> so she did. And then she says, what do you want? And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, I'm noticing a little increased durability. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah. So increased durability. Have you noticed that going on with people that are around you? Uh, three, constant physical tension. You need a massage daily. You know, like, you know, but just this kind of, you notice yourself physically, you know, uh, tense all the time. Four, preoccupation with self and failure to notice others. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that just interesting? That if you are working your way over to three and four, you're not going to be a very good team member. You're not going to actually be a very good leader because what did I say earlier? To lead, you have to, number one priority is notice and lead and notice others and develop others. Well, you can't do that if you're living in three and four. Um, four, the loss of a sense of gratitude and joy. Nothing good about this job. You know, there's, there's just this sense of, um, I, you know, well, you, of that. Five, or six, uh, talking fast and completing other sentences. 
Hey, I'm not making these up. This is his research. Uh, seven, fatigue. You just feel tired all the time and you can't catch up. As I see people yawning. Um, so fatigue. And then the last one is uh, feeling that life is passing you by even though you go faster and faster. So there's this sense of I'm losing control of the... If you have four more of those, you're slipping into quadrants three and four, is what he says. Now, the question, of course, is what can you do about this? Uh, and I'll tell you what, because I see a lot of you taking notes. I'll, um, we could post this on the website, right, on the I, NS, NS, NCSM website. Okay, we'll get this post. I'll post this. Uh, uh, this is actually from Keynote, and I'll post it on the website. You can have it, okay? So, because I... Um, uh, so we work primarily for the, the experience of being in quadrant one, which we talked about. We experience, when we're there, we experience an ongoing flow created by ideas when we're able to encourage and support others. We help others. We seek to solve problems. We're just so much better at our jobs and how we lead. So, how do we avoid going over to three and four? What is his advice? What do we learn here? It's so cool. When you see this, you almost go, well, then why don't we go do this? Uh, number one, um, we need to put ourselves in our work. We need to spend time in quiet reflection. He says you need to live a balanced life in one and two. You need to spend time in both of those quadrants. And then, in fact, if you spend too much time in quadrant one, you'll burn yourself out. So what do we do? He says, one, we get intentional about spending time away from the noise and rush. You force yourself to get away from the intensity of your work days. I tell the story about how I... I would, uh, when my children were really young, two and four years old, I wanted ice cream so bad on the way home most nights. So, you know, I'd get done coaching. And so I would drive to the Tasty Freeze, I'd get the ice cream cone, and then I'd sit like a block from my house and eat it because I didn't want to walk in the house in front of the kids with ice cream. No, they didn't want me to go take the ice cream. I didn't have any energy left to go take them. So I would just selfishly have quadrant two times eating an ice cream. And you should do that. Okay. So this whole, this whole message comes down to hot club Sundays and eating ice cream cones a block away from your house and see people thinking you're a predator. So, <laughs> two, get this. The way you avoid time in three and four is to do what you're doing right here in this conference. You come together, you be together, you socialize, you get into community with others, and you create as leaders, then we must create those communities in our schools those opportunities and structures for time to come together and then talk around meaningful reform or things that we're trying to lead um, in, in our own way. And then, get ready for this, you have to spend time in deep relationship with select and trusted others. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Do you have two or three significant other people in your life that you could trust beyond belief? He says you need them. If you don't have them, you're going to go. You're going to slip on over. So um, my hope is that you won't, that you'll have those people and you'll be able to, to stay over in quadrants one and two. Keep that in mind. But I want to finish with just this reading um, from the book on courage. Okay. Courage is about making tough choices, but those choices more often than not involve the little things we do. Do I say yes to this person or do I say no? Do I accept their idea or do I refuse it? Do I allow people to try these ideas or do I hold them accountable? What do I do? Do I stay or do I leave? Do I speak or do I stay silent? None of these choices on the surface feel particularly frightening, but in the proper context, they can be terrifyingly difficult. It's not for anyone to decide whether someone else's act is courageous or not. 
Ultimately, what takes courage and what does not is a very personal decision. Courage is the virtue that's needed if we're truly going to transform our lives. Courage is the virtue that's needed if we're going to enact anything that is significantly important to us. Courage is the virtue that's needed if we're going to change the status quo. And we must be status quo changers. We must be people leading folks to the right kinds of things so it'll sustain itself. Leadership's about taking people to places they've never been before, and we can't go to those places without courage. Leadership is courage in action. Courage gives us the energy to move forward. Courage gives us the confidence to believe we can make it. Courage gives us the strength to sustain ourselves in the darkest hours, even when we're not sure of our own leadership. Courage enables us to leave a legacy that declares, I was here, and I made a difference. Let me read that again. Courage enables us to leave a legacy that declares, I was here and I made a difference. And that's my hope for all of you, that as passionate people wanting to try to lead the effort of mass reform in this country, that you will be able to look back and say, I was here and I made a difference. Thanks, everybody. Have a great, great conference. Be sure to tune in to episode 14, our final episode, demonstrating and explaining how a culturally-based second-grade math curriculum improved the math performance of diverse Alaskan students. 